episode 125 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On this episode of TBR Podcast, I interview Christy Ellison, a PhD candidate at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. We often think of laws as being like, here's a here's the law, a thing that kind of lives above us and like the court hands down these rules and that we, we follow them. And so the idea here is um, starting from a place of, you know, the law actually is has this kind of persuasive quality because ultimately this is all by agreement. So, you know, people, we follow these rules because we agree to, because we agree to live in this society. And so, so the court has to um, not just announce laws, but they're actually persuading us that the laws are fair and just and this kind of thing. And and that, that scholarship already exists to some extent, although, as I said, there's not a lot of connection between the two fields. And so it does, hasn't picked up a lot of, of traction. But so what, what I looked at then was how the court was able to essentially use their rhetorical power to create more judicial power for themselves. And so looked at the way that the way that they form the narratives to do this persuasive work actually impacted the, ma- the material effects of our right. You'll hear more from Christy in a bit. But first, I want to tell you about an event that I just took part in. Illinois State University, where I received my PhD, invited me back virtually to talk about podcasting and the big rhetorical podcast. I'm thrilled to learn that ISU has dedicated space in their department, in their physical building, to podcasting, a place that's part of a larger plan to develop an innovative curriculum that meets the needs of students. Over the two-day virtual visit, I led a workshop on podcasting and then took part in a talk with my friend and fellow podcaster Matt Shearing, and then an extended interview about becoming a podcaster and offered musings on future directions of podcasting. It was exciting to see so many familiar faces and very much enjoyed leading the workshop. This is, I think, the fourth workshop I've led about podcasting at different universities. I'll save you the short laundry list and And instead say that I enjoy doing this work. Please, please invite me to your class, to your program, your department, organization. To talk about podcasts and podcasting. I will be there. This is how we continue to build community through podcasting. And demonstrate innovative work being done in our field. In rhetoric, composition technical communication email me at the big rhetorical at gmail.com visit the website the big rhetorical podcast.weebly.com we'll discuss a potential collaboration i look forward to hearing from you christy ellison is a phd candidate in english rhetoric and composition at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, where she earned post-bac certificate in women's and gender studies. Christy holds a JD from UNC Law School in Chapel Hill and practiced law before earning an MA in literature 
from NC State. She focuses on how legal rhetorics, narrative texts, and public writing contribute to and constrain social construction and societal power dynamics. Her dissertation is titled, It Is So Ordered, Storytelling Power of the Supreme Court. And in it, she argues that the court uses its narrative choices to expand its judicial power and impact individual rights in ways that are often unrecognized, thus failing to prompt a public response. On top of finishing up her PhD, Christie also teaches first-year writing at Elon University. I hope you enjoy the interview. What's your name, your title, and your institution, your role there? Uh, who are you? What do you do? Yeah, so I am Christy Ellison. I am a um, graduate student in the PhD program in English um, in rhetoric and composition at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Um, I am finishing up my eighth year and actually just submitted my dissertation this week. So yes to that. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank That's you. Huge. Um, yeah, no, it was um one of those things that like felt like it was never actually going to get here. And then all of a sudden it was here and it's like, oh, I, I did the thing. Um, so I defend a month from today, actually. So that'll be that'll be good. Um, and then I actually I teach uh, first year writing at um, Elon University, which is just uh, right down the road. I um I ran out of funding, unsurprisingly, at some point, and so, um, but they've been they've been great there and and working with me while I finish this up. So, awesome. Well, let's congratulations again, and let's separate this um, yeah. in the graduate school at UNC Greensboro and teaching at Elon University, uh, which are both in North Carolina. Yeah. Are you originally from North Carolina? I am. I was born in Durham, and when I was five, we moved to Granville County, which is just north of the Triangle area, and that's uh, where I grew up. So I've been, um, I spent some time in, in Phoenix, Arizona, but have otherwise been in, in North Carolina and around the, the Triangle and the Triad my whole life. Excellent. And so you did graduate school in the Triangle in Raleigh, Durham, too? Yes. Yeah, so I, um, so actually, um, this is, well, so this is my, my second run through graduate school. So when I first, uh, went to college, I got my first bachelor's at Arizona state. And then I went to law school at uh, university of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, and then I, um, worked for a firm in Arizona. And then I, when I decided I didn't want to practice anymore, I moved back to North Carolina. Um, cause my family and everybody was here. I had two adorable nieces who I wanted to be around more. Um, and then I decided to go back to school. So I, my first degree was actually in justice studies. And so I wanted to write was why I went back to school. And uh, I went to, um, I just applied to North Carolina State because that was the school in Raleigh um, and got a second bachelor's in English and then a master's degree in English there. And then I did my PhD at UNCG. What's the connection between Arizona and North Carolina? <laughs> so 
Um, actually, so my my sister is a um, computer uh, software engineer, and she got a job for Intel back in the 90s and had moved out to Arizona. And so I went out there for, for college to be closer to her. Um, and so then that was just kind of where my connections were when I when I went to get a job. And so why I went back out there. But she in the meantime had, had moved back. Um, and so then that's when I ended up moving back. So let's talk about what you're teaching. Uh, you're at Elon University. Tell us a little bit about Elon. What's the school size, the demographic, and then kind of lead into what classes you're teaching this semester? Um, yeah, I think, oh gosh, I'm, I probably, I should, I should know this. Um, it, it's, I want to say around 5,000. I'm going to check because I don't want to get this. <laughs> Um, it's some online research listeners. Uh, yeah, as we, as we speak, we Google things too. Um, the other day, a student in one of my classes was like, what is, what does this word mean? And I was like, I didn't know, honestly. And I went, looked at him and I was like, do you think that's my job? I was like, just Google it. I know they're always so funny when you tell them to, when you're trying to get them to say they can Google something, like they think it's some bad thing they're not supposed to do. I'm like, yeah, like Google it. It's totally fine. Yeah. I'm going to walk 10 feet over here to the computer and Google it. You just Google it. <laughs> I try to Google things before I do it in front of them, just in case something comes up that I wasn't expecting. But sometimes I'll be like, let's just try it and see. All right, let's see. All right, we got... Uh, 6,300, 6,300 undergraduate students, 786 graduate students. Um, so it is, it's a private institution. It was uh, founded as um, a Christian school, I believe, but that um, that shifted a while ago. And so it's um, a lot of the students um, come from all over. There's actually a lot that come from the Northeast. Um, and it's, um, it was funny because, you know, as I said, I grew up here and especially kind of being from the Triangle and going to Greensboro, I drive past it. It's in officially the town of Elon, but it's essentially out, like right by Burlington, which is kind of between the Triangle and the Triad. So I drive right by it. And it was one of these like, oh, it's just this small private school there. Like, I really didn't think one way or another about it. Um, and then my my older niece actually um, started there last year as a freshman. And so her um, her parents were with my other niece on her like kind of orientation, you know, going to talk to people day. So I was like, I'll take you. And I was actually kind of on the fence about like, do I even want to stay in higher education? Just because there's all of the things in that's part of that. And when I went with her um, and she's in the communications department and listening to the, um, to the, I think it was like the assistant um, head of that department and talk about like how much they cared about students and learning and their social justice focused and not what I would expect from a private school if I'm being honest like and I don't know why I just I always went to state school so like that was just kind of my own bias um and yeah just really really committed to to the students and the the work and I was like I could honestly say it was that moment I was like I could see myself working here um, and so that was, I think, in, in March of my six years, I knew I was, they'd already kind of gotten me squeezed an extra year of funding because of COVID. And so like, I knew that I was done. Um, and I just happened to, you know, you get the emails circle around that they were hiring for, um, for adjuncts. And so, yeah, I, I applied. It actually happened really fast. Um, I, you know, kind of applied, got the interview, 
got the offer the next week. Um, and yeah, they've just been incredibly welcoming. Um, it's actually uh, ranked number one in undergraduate education, um, which is uh, really a really big deal because it is, it's about, you know, putting the students in, and there's definitely research people. It's not necessarily like a teaching institution. People do research, but um, yeah, it's, it's really focused on, on the outcomes and, and honestly has a, a outward kind of social justice message. That's awesome. What do you teach in this semester? Um, I teach first year writing. Um, and so, which I, I love teaching writing. Um, yeah. I, I, my goal is to help students find their voice and that's, yeah. you know, especially in the first year when they're coming in. Um, and so, um, we have, I taught two classes semester last year. I'm teaching three this time, which is, um, it's a bit of an adjustment. Um, but yeah, I just, they're, they're a lot of fun and, these students in particular, they're mostly residential, um, you know, like a lot of them come from um, outside of, of the state. And, and so a lot of them are kind of away from home for the first time and that kind of thing. So they're, um, there's a real good energy with them. Well, what kind of projects are your students doing? Uh, what kind of learning outcomes are they trying to meet? What kind of values are guiding your pedagogy and your approach? Yeah, so it's interesting. So um where I, I did the bulk of my teaching was at UNCG, which is a, a minority serving institution. And so it was definitely a bit of a change for me, um, you know, coming to Elon was a, a different student population. And so I had always, um, one of my biggest value is like having everyone making space for everyone's voices and, and considering, you know, other um, kind of other perspectives and things. And I realized that I had been leaning kind of heavily on just kind of opening the space and letting students show their different perspectives and, and kind of making room for, for students to, to kind of bring that diversity in. And so it was definitely something I had to kind of um, reevaluate how I was gonna get that across in a classroom with um, you know, very few students of color in it um, and, and kind of be more of, of, of actively bringing that voice in, but also not wanting to you know, misrepresent or overspeak or, or anything like that. It, it kind of felt um, you know, like a, an important, um, an important thing. So um, it's a lot of, um, I do where they pick a topic that they work with um, throughout the term. And I knew I wanted to do it that way. And then the very first instructor I mentored back in my master's at North Carolina State um, did it that way. And I was sold. And so I've, I've done it that way ever since. Um, the students really respond to it. Um, and they pick all kinds of things from whatever their field is, sometimes tied to what they think their major is going to be. Other times just, I'm interested in this. So I've had Everything from, you know, really serious kind of social topics to, you know, who's better, you know, Michael or LeBron. Um, so, you know, it's kind of anything. Um, and so they start with a topic proposal. So we spend a lot of time with that. And then they do um, a comparative rhetorical analysis looking at scholarly and popular sources and kind of what's the affordances of each and what what they um, you know, what kind of comes from each. And so it's definitely um, some work there convincing students that you know, scholarly sources, while helpful and important, are not the be-all, end-all. <laughs> like, we right. need all, all kinds of voices and sources. Right. Um, so then we do an annotated bib and a source synthesis um, where they, you know, get break down each of the sources individually, talk about how they're going to build their arguments and put them together. Uh, one of my favorite things I do as part of that is what I, I now call a work-in-progress presentation. Um, and they have, like, usually it's about four or five minutes where they just present to the class 
here's my argument, my reasons, all that kind of thing. And then, um, you know, then they each have another kind of five or so minutes of then getting feedback from the class, like on their argument. Um, and sometimes it takes a minute to get going, but you know, I find the students have the best feedback. A lot of times they'll say, oh, we were just talking about this in such and such class and they'll have ideas for that um, and that kind of thing. And so sometimes even my like really quiet classes will like come alive during this process. Yeah. I have something to share. Um, so that's a lot of fun. Um, and so I used to that then led into the, um, you know, a typical research paper kind of where you expect it to go. But um, when I taught one summer and kind of that accelerated pace, I was like, there wasn't time. And I found out that they really, without that paper coming, they put more work into the, the annotated bib itself because they knew that was kind of the last academic stop on this. And so I now do the last project they do. It's a portfolio. So they revisit one of their essays and then they do um, an adaptation project where they take the argument they've been making. They pick what audience they want to reach, they decide what genre is going to reach that audience, and then they get to do um, whatever kind of project uh, they want to do to make that argument. So that's been a lot of fun to help them kind of see, you know, the value in, in the work they're doing in other ways. How does your interest and your experiences in law school and your interest in perhaps law and legal studies influence the way that you approach first year writing? Um, that's a great question. I, um, it was funny because I, I used to think I wanted to do kind of a, a legal theme type writing because I often have a, a few students here and there that wanted to go into law. Um, and there wasn't really, there's just a practical way to like, to label it as such, just the way like mm -hmm. the registration system works, it, you know. Um, but I did do a, um, at UNCG they were called freshman seminars and it was kind of it was would take the place of your first year writing and you could theme it however you want so I did one um, but what I found was I think the kind of work for things like that is so different from kind of where they're at that it, it doesn't mm -hmm. really translate um, but I mm -hmm. do think because ultimately what legal writing is is about building arguments with evidence and thinking about like creative ways to make your point and things like that, um, that I think it, it comes across in that way. Um, it's interesting because one of the things that as I started kind of bridging the two fields in my work, I realized how little the two fields actually like talk to each other, even though, yeah. like, you know, classical rhetoric was kind of started in law and like, yeah, there's certain things we do, but we definitely don't ever use the term like at all. Um, I was in one of my graduate classes and and when the professor was said something like, oh, yeah, well, you know, we're going to do stasis theory. You know, you must know what this is. And I was like, I don't know. So as he starts describing it and I was like, oh, well, yeah, like that's how we did it. But like no one had ever used this term. Like it, there's no there's no formal rhetoric. And in fact, there is. I think most law schools have some kind of writing class your first year, but it's kind of low man on the totem pole. Like it's not considered like, you know, the most important thing. Um, and so it's been really interesting kind of seeing that then, you know, there are certainly in some English departments that don't always see writing as, as the top thing compared to some, some other areas. And so you kind of see that, but I think, you know, <laughs> for me, I think it's a lot of, um, 
you know, seeing the value in words, and especially when you think about um, in doing the legal work I did, I worked at a large firm. So I think I was only in a courtroom maybe twice and, you know, almost fainted both times. So that really wasn't for me. Um, So most of my work was writing, like that was my strong suit. And that was why I kind of wanted to go back and do that. And so I think able to see like the work that words really can have those kind of effects. And so, you know, believing in, in that and knowing that, you can, um, you know, put your voice on things. Let's dive into a deeper conversation about your research. Uh, you describe your, your your research interests is in how legal rhetorics, narrative texts, and public writing contribute to and constrain social construction and societal power dynamics. So um, after talking to you for just a little bit now, I feel like perhaps this is a long gestating project, a project that's been through multiple iterations and multiple spaces and places. And so I want to give the room to talk about that on the podcast. Indeed, I think some of the, these are some of the richest moments when we talk about how a text came to be. So maybe that can be the general question. How did this thing come to be? But really, like, where did it start? Where did it start? Okay, so this is going to sound like I'm going way far back, but this is a truth. So when I decided to leave law and come come back to writing, um, I didn't really talk about my background. And it was it was almost like I saw it as I'm closing that chapter, I'm gonna do something different. So when I did my bachelor's, my concentration was creative writing. And then my master's is actually in um, American and British literature. And um, I think the, you know, the sad part for me is, um, you know, the English department in North Carolina State actually has some amazing retcon people in it, um, but I was not doing writing composition then. So I've met them all and, and everything, but did not take any of those classes. Um, and so my master's work was actually on um, young adult dystopian literature, primarily the Hunger Games. And Oh, that's cool. I yeah. like that. So. And that started because as I was, I was, you know, reading the Hunger Games and what I noticed was the way that, that Katniss, the hero was acting would fit like our kind of legal and moral understanding of like defense of others and self-defense. And so even though she was living in this completely different time and didn't, she didn't have this, you know, our, you know, legal code, like that was how her actions were, um, were being represented. And so it, it seemed like, you know, well, what, um, you know, that that just struck me as like how it fit kind of in, into this framework. And so um, the funny thing was, is I, I did that project and I I was basically um, primarily Hunger Games looked at the giver and divergent. And what I noticed was some patterns. And so there was a little bit of literature talking about this young adult dystopian literature, whether it would fit into the, the building German theory of like separation, initiation, return. But the problem was you had to like blow up your community as part. That's how this dystopian literature works, right? Like you have to either leave or destroy mm-hmm. your community. So they were saying like these were failed, you know, attempts because they couldn't return. So I did this, this whole thing where I was looking at like the way fan fiction works, the way online communities work, like all these things. And basically was saying, well, you know, that in like how children's literature things are meant to, to teach morals and this kind of thing. So I was like, well, the return isn't to the fictional community that in this case, it's the reader that's the community and that's who they're returning to because that's who they're teaching the lessons from their, you know, from their travels or their growth and that kind of thing. So the funny part about the story is I even at one point can remember having gathered these books that seemed relevant by, um, by people that were talking about rhetoric, but 
as I'm, it's too big to deal with. And I was like, you know, I'm not really doing rhetoric. So I, I like put them away like without even looking. So I wrote this whole thing and must've said the reader community a hundred times, never once used the word audience or actually used real, like, you know, rhetorical theory or anything in any way. And so um, when I got to, to UNCG in my, in my PhD program and the, um, the director of our writing programs, we all were TAs, met with each of us kind of one-on-one, talked about our CV, our life goals. She's now my chair and just a fabulous, fabulous um, just woman in general and, and scholar. Who's that? Uh, Nancy Myers. Um, she's a big mentor. Like her goal is to mentor everyone. Um, and so as we're talking and I'm kind of describing what I do and she looks at me and she's like, you, you know what you do is rhetoric, right? <laughs> and I was like, do, do I? <laughs> Is oh, it? I mean, <laughs> okay, sure. Um, and so the the good thing was, even though I had come in as literature, and in hindsight, I don't know who they thought I was going to work with, like when they took me in. Um, they're at least the like changing from from literature officially over to ret comp was literally the um, the DGS just taking her pencil and erasing on my chart and then writing in ret comp, and then that was there was a fanfare. That was that. Um, so yeah, I, I moved over, um, to retcom and started working with her. And then as, as part of kind of her mentorship, um, you know, she's like, if you, you know, if you want to keep doing this work, you certainly can, and it's fine. Um, but you should know that like, you know, young adult literature is, is not as, it's not quite gotten to a point where people, where everyone is accepting that is kind of worthy of, of study and this kind of thing. And so she was more, I think, looking out for like my ability to get a job down the road and things. And, sure. and, you know, was like, Oh, if you do something a little more traditional, then, you know, maybe it'll, it'll be easier. And so I was like, okay. And, but I still like, wasn't sure. Um, but it was really, and I feel like she probably had this sneaky long game going the whole time would, would talk to me about different things that kind of drew out some of my legal experience. And, over time, it was like, well, what if we look at it this way? Or what if we do this? And so um, eventually it, it got, it just came to where it was like the two were overlapping so much. It was like, okay, I have to like look at this and, and see where it goes. Um, and for a long time, like people didn't necessarily know if it didn't come up and and I have good genes. I look younger than I am. And so I would often just like blend in with people. Um, and so um, as it started coming out and then people are like, oh, that's cool. Cause like, I don't know, I kind of saw it as like a failure, I think for a long time of like, I failed at my legal career. And so that was why I didn't really um, talk about it much. But then as people were like, oh no, that's interesting. Or, you know, would have questions about things. I was like, okay. Um, so yeah, I, so this a very long way to get to this particular project, which started as uh, my first wanted to kind of look at the Handmaid's Tale um, as as those images were coming out, and I was noticing things like um, there was one state where they couldn't they wanted to protest in the state legislature, but like you couldn't say anything, and so they basically just dressed in like the red robes and the the white hats, and like that was a way to like kind of this protest without being able um, you know to use words. And, you know, she was kind of like, I mean, you can, like, I can tell she didn't, she didn't super love that. Um, and so then we just kind of started moving towards this idea of looking at reproductive rights, just kind of the, the case law in general. Um, and so I don't even, I, I honestly don't know, like, 
how that first, I think it, that's how we got from like PMA's cell reproductive rights is how that part yeah. happened. Um, and then I initially, I was going to write about, um, I wasn't even going to write about Roe v. Wade directly. It was going to be kind of like the background to set up. And I was primarily going to, I was going to start with um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was a 1992 case. And I had been struggling to write and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to say. And I think when I, what I was thinking in terms for um, the Casey opinion, they was where they introduced this idea of an undue burden standard. Um, and the idea was it sounded like the kind of standard that could be applied kind of an individual basis of like what, you know, and, and could, if you say lack resources and that could be a burden, but it just, it wasn't being applied that way. Like it wasn't, it just didn't work. Right. And I think the system's not really designed for that. Right. I mean, you know, we talk about like what, what can be reformed and what kind of has to be torn down. And, and I will, I'll preface all this by, I don't have any magic answers. I'm more about uncovering problems. Um, right. You know, I, I kind of feel like the problems is kind of, you know, where to start. Um, but yeah, just, I'll- yeah, go ahead. No, I like that. You go ahead. No. So I think for me, it was like, you know, this is, we have this system that believes it's objective. And of course, you know, I think many of us would agree that it certainly isn't, but it thinks it, it's applying objectively. And so it's just not really um, designed for that. And then I think the, kind of the secondary problem is this idea of like how you consider people's you know, access issues or things like this requires a certain amount of, um, you know, empathetic identification that, frankly, the judiciary just isn't capable of when it comes to, you know, those with the least amount of resources, like, they just can't comprehend what that kind of lack of resources would actually look like. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was kind of what I was, I was looking at there. Um, and how this, you know, this idea of like how the words sounded like they could be, you know, this opinion sounded like it was more kind of women friendly, if you will, and sounded like it was more interested in equality, but it actually, the rights themselves were playing out worse. Um, okay. I'm glad you kept talking because all, I'm, all I was going to say was I really like the title of your dissertation, uh, which is, it is so ordered storytelling power in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, How did you get to this title? I literally came up with that title about um, maybe two weeks ago. Okay, that's Um, fair. Yeah, it's funny. I'm definitely one of those people that's either either like the title comes immediately or the title comes at the end. And that's it's pretty much one or the other. Um, And so what ended up happening with this project was I... I started writing, um, and then I actually wrote a chapter um, on Roe. I've have a I've been working on a an article on that, um, and I had sent it to my advisor, and she was she thought I was like working on a side project. She's like, "Oh my gosh, this is like your the first chapter of your dissertation. This is like," and I was like, "What? That was an accident. <laughs> like, I wasn't even I didn't even realize like what I was that that's what I was doing." Um, and so in that case, it, I was kind of looking at the, um, the way there's, you know, there's a lot of complaints about Rose kind of focused on the doctors and, and how they, their rights and things like that. And so, um, and I think, you know, what I saw in that was there were some, some things about the way that, that legal tax work specifically that was, that was getting missed. So, um, you know, one of the things at the time, the law that was at issue was a law that, um, made it illegal to perform abortions, but not to receive them. So as a practical matter, that was part of why, you know, they would, it would look like they were centering the doctor's rights because that's, that was the thing that was at issue in the case. 
Um, and I think the other thing that that came up for me was this idea of, you know, if we actually imagine this moment in time where that, you know, abortions have been illegal and, you know, as a practical matter, we needed the doctors to perform the abortions because that's really what it was always about. You know, at least at that time, that was the main way that, that you could receive them. And so once we understand court opinions as being persuasive in nature, um, there was a certain amount of like having to persuade everyone that like, as they're kind of shifting the law that like, no, this is good. It fits within our community value systems. We should do this. And so there was a certain amount of like persuading the medical community that like they needed to do this, that this was, you know, that this was good after you lived in this kind of negative space for so long. Right. Um, and so, you know, and certainly the, the criticisms that women are not visible are fair, you know, and so like my goal is certainly not to say like, you know, that, that we shouldn't look at those things, but just to kind of, I guess, complicate some of those, those questions. Um, and so from there, um, I was working, so those, both of those two chapters were actually finished and with my chair, um, um, by, I guess, summer of, what year is it? 20? Let's back, let's back up just a second. Back up just a second. What kind of artifacts are like, what are you bringing together? What are you analyzing in this dissertation project? And then what are some of your primary arguments? So, yeah, so, and that was one of, so one of the things that kind of morphed over time, I think, was kind of what the focus turned out to be, because the focus would definitely was more, when I started, was more on reproductive rights itself and what had happened to that, even though I felt like some of the things I was saying could be applied more broadly. And over the course of doing the work, I realized what I, the amount of, um, how what I was looking at was actually much bigger. So in short, um, what the argument ended up being is this idea that, um, so we often think of laws as being like, here's a, here's the law, like a thing that kind of lives above us and like the court hands down these rules and that we, we follow them. And so the idea here is, um, starting from a place of, you know, the law actually is, has this kind of persuasive quality because ultimately, you know, this is all by agreement. So, you know, people, we follow these rules because we agree to, because we agree to live in this society. And so, you know, we, so the court has to um, not just announce laws, but they're actually persuading us that the laws are fair and just and this kind of thing. And, and that, that scholarship already exists to some extent, although, um, as I said, there's not a lot of connection between the two fields. And so it does, hasn't picked up a lot of, um, of traction, but so what, what I looked at then was how the court was able to essentially use their rhetorical power to create more judicial power for themselves. And so looked at the way that the way that they formed the narratives to do this persuasive work actually impacted the, the material effects of our rights. And, um, and in some cases, I think at first, you know, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it definitely happened. So, um, so essentially, um, if we think about one of the, one of those clear examples, of, as we think about precedent operating as a constraint, right? We think about you know the precedent is the idea that courts follow previous court decisions, and it helps build stability. It helps us know what our you know what our rights are and these kind of things. And so, but it also operates as a rhetorical constraint because you have to, as you're deciding how you're going to persuade, you have to deal with this. And so, it can be both positive and negative. So, in a case like Roe, it was a a positive constraint because they built on other cases related to contraception, things like that. And that's what let them build this right on these existing cases and say, this follows our legal tradition. 
when you get to Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was 1992, they actually significantly altered reproductive rights. So the trimester scheme that many people have heard of no longer applied. Um, they directly got rid of it then. Under Roe, the states couldn't make any regulations in the first trimester at all. And up until viability, regulations had to be based in maternal health. And after Casey, that was uh, that was when that actually when that changed. And so now that's where you started seeing states making regulations related to, um, you know, potential uh, fetal life and things like that all the way from the beginning. Um, but because they, the other thing they did during that case was say, we're upholding the essence of Roe is what they called it. And so they have this really strong language about how important precedent is and how they have to follow it. And they're, you know, so they, because um, at the time, kind of much like we saw um, before Dobbs, there was a lot of press about, oh, they're going to overturn, they're going to overturn. And so they made a big point of saying, we're not overturning and so that became the story. And that's all anybody heard was like Roe was saved, Roe wasn't overturned. And so a lot of the actual changes to the rights then kind of got papered over. And so it didn't really evoke what you might have expected as the public response. The kind of things we're seeing now, frankly, should have been happening then, but people didn't realize how much the rights had changed and how much power the states got back um, just by the changes that they made. And so so then the, the other case I look at is... Um, uh, Gonzalez v. Carhartt, which was uh, 2007. Um, and that was a case that upheld the federal uh, partial birth abortion ban. And that one was, that chapter was probably my monster because it turns out um, that whole situation is rhetorical. Like the whole, um, the term partial birth um, is, it, it's all, it was never about, you know, we think about laws that like regulate behavior. It was never about regulating behavior. It was literally, I'm going to invent something so then I can regulate it so then I can upset people about it. And, and they admitted that was the goal at the time. Um, and in that case, the um, court had taken up a, a Nebraska law that was very similar in 2000 and struck it down. And so then this federal law comes back and made like a tiny change that did not even begin to address all the problems. And yet they upheld it. And so again, I was kind of looking at the way they use their kind of persuasive power to tell this story um, of how they said, no, we are following it and, and claim to be um, still following the existing precedent when, you know, from a legal perspective, they definitely were not. Um, and, and so it was while I was working on that chapter um, that, that the Dobbs opinion was leaked and that kind of like, <laughs> like, Set everything on its head, if I'm being honest, because, right. you know, so the first two chapters were done. They're with my advisor. We're like, and um, I'm working on this chapter. And I was just kind of trying to figure out the argument for that. Yeah. And that's where I really saw this kind of, that's where I really identify this, like, use of power in this way. Um, and so um, that chapter, I think, um, is, is called... Um, expanding the boundaries of precedence rhetorical constraint, right? So the idea is that they, they're they able by by using their, their, you know, rhetorical power to expand those boundaries and make it look like, here's how we're going to convince people we're following precedent, we're not. They're able to actually, you know, subvert this idea of, of following precedent. Um, and so I think it was part of, you know, what was then going on. And at the time it was funny because, you know, when people would ask me what I was working on, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I do support Supreme Court narratives and abortion cases. And they were just like, I'm sorry. Like, you know, uh, how do you, how do you, but that's, 
That's a great question. Like, how do you do this? Like right now, as this is changing, as this is leaking, like this is what scholarship and research is. It's hard to navigate. It's incredibly hard. And I have to say, I, um, at the end of the day, I am, I'm really thankful um, that my timeline ended up being, being what it is. So, you know, I definitely did not intend to take eight years. That was never the plan. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe some people go in with that. That was not, you know, that was not my plan. Um, and it was, I spent the past couple of years being like, just one more semester, just one more semester. I'm almost there. Um, but I, at the end, I'm thankful because I was able to deal with it. So my conclusion chapter, which is, um, well, all my chapters are much longer than traditional chapters, but, um, is longer than probably would be, um, because I do deal with jobs and not nearly as much as I deal with, with the other cases. But, um, you know, if I graduated even a semester sooner, I wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't have had the time, you know, to be able, as it was, it, it took a lot of work. Um, but I wouldn't have been able to. And so I think, you know, for me, I could see and I was able to to talk about in my terms how the work I was doing still applied. Um, but I think had I not been able to say that, it would have been easy for it to just look like, oh, it's obsolete now. Um, and so I was grateful for the chance to be able to say, like, no, this is why it's still important. Um, point out some other places where we see some very similar moves um, in terms of how they they talk about what they're doing and that kind of thing. And so it was um, it was really important to me to be able to do that. One of the questions I often ask uh, guests I'm interviewing on the podcast is why is this work important right now? Uh, <laughs> and I, I certainly think that uh, we know why this work is incredibly, is crucial. But in your own words, why? Yeah, um, I think for me, um, it's the main thing is it it's important. I mean, obviously, it's important because rights are important. And um, and I think the fact that, you know, we know that words have power, but to have this kind of power in this way and, and not people not realize it. So, um, you know, similar to what happened with the with the Casey opinion after the, the Carhartt opinion, most people thought in practical terms of like how many procedures are actually been affected by this law. And because it wasn't a lot, you didn't see a lot of, of movement towards that. And I think, you know, it's important that people know what their, um, you know, how their rights are being impacted and how, you know, what, there's so much that goes on that people don't realize. And these are their rights. And these are, these are, you know, what people, um, you know, affect people's lives in real ways. And, and even as, um, you know, as other scholars, and one of the challenges for me is, as a feminist scholar was looking at work that other feminist scholars had done in this area and being able to tell that, you know, the arguments they were making that were really important, um, but were missing some of the nuances of the, the legal discourse itself that were then weakening their arguments. But then for me to try to make those arguments in a way that's like, I don't, I certainly don't want to seem antagonistic to the cause because my goal is to like have all the information to make, you know, to make the argument stronger um, and not to say, you know, oh, you can't argue it that way, but to say, think about this so that, you know, the argument is stronger. And I think, you know, because I see feminism as a way of, of, looking at, you know, equality for everyone in, in all kinds of areas. And so a lot of these these same issues are now affecting, we see it with um, 
you know, with trans rights, especially with minors and things that they're dealing with, there's a lot of echoing of the same kind of, of moves there and, and things. And honestly, any of the rights can be on the table. And this idea of creating this kind of power, you know, related to, to precedent in our traditions could affect anything. I mean, it honestly, you know, even certainly the rights that are based around the same ideas um, that reproductive rights were um, are on the table and the fact that they just tried to say, oh no, those rights are fine. We don't mean those. Like that, <laughs> that's kind of meaningless to be honest. Um, you know, they could say something else next week. Um, and so, but at the end of the day, if, if we want our, you know, if we want to believe that our system is at all reflective of our values as a community, then we have to at least understand what it's doing and what's at stake. And so I think that's my goal is honestly kind of to bridge some of that. And I think um, kind of, you had asked me started kind of the way that I, some of the artifacts or the way that I did this. And, and it was one of the things that came up, one of my committee members kind of way late in the process for me to change my methodology um, was kind of, you know, suggesting that she kind of expected to see more like specific rhetorical theory. Um, and I had a hard time kind of explaining at first, like what I, how I was approaching it. And then I, I eventually came to realize this because like, I knew that I was doing this rhetorical analysis. And so it was like, my education was the lens. Like I was the lens of looking at it because it, it was because I had this, you know, this legal knowledge to be able to look at something and see how it interacted. Um, and it was putting those two things together is actually what, you know, what that lens was. Um, and so I don't think there wasn't necessarily, like I have, I set it up with different, you know, different theories in different areas that kind of ground it and kind of the pieces that I pull together, but I don't think anything else does kind of live at this intersection. And so um, it was really just the work that, that I was able to do um, from bringing the pieces together. So what are you doing this afternoon? Um, this afternoon, I, well, I've now got some like teaching things to catch up on from like getting everything done, but then I'm actually just looking forward to just nothing. Like for so long, my life has been any spare moment is, you know, writing and doing. And so, yeah, I, I think this is going to be my first kind of weekend of not having to do that. So I'm yeah <laughs> looking forward to that for sure. Start preparing for the, de- start preparing for the defense. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Good luck on that. Thanks. It's been really great chatting with you. And this is incredibly important work. Um, And I appreciate how you are, through your dissertation project, demonstrating the uh, interdisciplinarity of our field, uh, which I think is incredibly important. Thanks, Christy. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Allison. Uh, Her work is timely, important, and I'm excited to see how she continues to focus on legal rhetorics as her research continues. Okay, that does it for me, listeners. I am feeling that mid-semester wear. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of TBR Podcast. I'll be back next week with another new interview. Until then... Always be listening rhetorically.
The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of many native nations, past and present. These original homelands are territories of indigenous peoples who are largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kickapoo, and Tawakoni peoples. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Stepha Helix, and DJ Arcod. Thank you.